No compromise, even in the face of Armageddon. That's written in tiny letters on that picture that you quite can't see. And these words are pretty powerful words. No compromise, even in the face of Armageddon. And it's spoken by one of my favorite fictional characters. And he's called Rorschach. He's from Alan Moore's wonderful comic book, The Watchman. Uh, he's very much a kind of vigilante, anti-hero. And he's just, and he's convicted, and he's so right. And despite all of those things, he is a terrible role model for all of us. And today we're going to be seeing why his unwillingness to compromise isn't necessarily the right way. It isn't necessarily as Christian as we might think. But I do want to leave us with these questions. Am I destroying the work of God or am I seeing beauty in unity? So hello again. Uh, my name is James. For those of y'all that may have missed it the first time around, I'm the pastor here. And we're on to week three of our four-week series on Romans or Romans Disarmed. And I'm stealing a lot of ideas from this wonderful book by Sylvia Kiesmat and Brian Walsh. And what they do in Romans Disarmed is say, this is a text that has often been weaponized. It has been used to cut people out. It has been used to exclude people from communities. But actually, that wasn't Paul, the guy that wrote the letter. That was never his intention. He's actually looking to build people up. Just like what we heard there about that mutual edification and how much growth can come from that. And sadly, over the years, we've kind of taken that message and we've twisted it into something different. We've used it as a tool to ostracize and exclude when actually this letter is kind of an instruction manual almost on understanding the radically inclusive heart of Jesus. So the idea is trying to get us look at this letter in a new light, really trying to understand what is going on in the world of that early church, those Christians who first received this letter. And the first week we looked about how radical this book was. We looked at this idea that if Jesus is Lord, it means that Caesar is not. And when we let that truth radiate in our actions, in our words, in our lives, everything becomes beautiful. Everything is different. And everything looks so much more like that kingdom that Jesus is establishing. This Christianity, this story that Jesus brings, it's a new story. It's one where everyone is welcome. Everyone mattered. That no matter what they'd done, who they were, this is a revelation of what the work of God looks like. And last week, we talked a little bit about how incredibly inclusive this kingdom was. That so many who had been excluded from any table of importance for so long were now welcome at the table of Jesus. That there is always room for one more. And as I said, it's hard for us to get our heads around how Paul's words would have been heard 2,000 years ago. We are not Roman, nor are we in the first century. We're not Jewish, as far as I'm aware. 
we are Gentiles, but Gentiles in a 21st century Toronto context, as opposed to Gentiles, as to say non-Jews, in a 1st century Roman context. There's a lot of differences there. And actually, what we have as 21st century Christians is 2,000 years of people kind of arguing about theology and arguing about their beliefs and arguing about what it means to be a Christian or not be a Christian. And we kind of benefit from that. Whether we realize it or not, we are a result of a whole lot of conversations and also quite a lot of controversies too. But it's unsurprising that with these early Christians, they are trying to work out what matters. And Paul seems very, very concerned that this issue of food will tear the young church apart. Some of you will remember we had the exact same reading last week, and that's quite intentional because I think there's so much more to mine from this verse, that this sermon today is the other side of that coin, how we get to that table of this beautiful inclusiveness. But what Paul does is he sees this difficult situation. He sees this fighting. He sees this division. And he uses it as an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to share unity, an opportunity to reveal beauty, for an opportunity for intimacy and to know one another's stories to know why these things matter as much as they do. So this, kind of, this question that's underlining here, all of this, is why does it matter? Like, why does what they eat matter so much to the early church? And the short answer is that it doesn't, right? I mean, Paul literally says everything is clean. It's right there in 1420. Everything is clean, right? That should be kind of clear, I think. And then, just to be clear, you know, he's kind of quoting Jesus on this, who also declares that everything is clean in Mark 7:19. So, in case you're wondering whether all foods are clean, yes, they are. The Bible is really clear about it. And so, it could be easy for him to say, look, not Judean believers who are all hung up about food, why don't you just get over yourselves already? Like, I've told you it's clean, Jesus has told you it's clean, just get on board. How dare you be fixated on this thing that doesn't matter? How dare you be wasting your time and my time on this? Why don't you just get it? And despite this, and despite being in the right, and despite the majority of people believing him and agreeing with him, his response isn't to lash out at those who are still concerned about dietary laws, but instead it's to tell those stronger believers, you should really know better. He says this, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God. How many of us here consider ourselves to be the work of God? The Bible's really clear about this all the way through, that we are created in his image and likeness. We are his work. We are his creation. We are the work of God. 
Does that change how we view ourselves? Does that maybe change how we view others, even those that we disagree with? Because in this moment, Paul is highlighting that the work of God in this moment is new believers coming to find their identity in God. To know that no matter what they've done, that they're worth something. That no matter how Caesar has told them they don't matter, no matter how many imperial banquets they have been shut out of, no matter how they have been used and abused by so many people that Jesus welcomes them with open arms, that they are the work of God. And you, stronger Christians, want to ruin that because you want pork chops for dinner. Like, get over yourselves. So a little bit of history here. The concern over what would be eaten would come from a variety of places, but primarily the focus seems to be from those Judean Christians. That's to say those who were racially Jewish, those who were from Israel originally, but have been kicked out or moved on at some point. Uh, but they now believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Much like the Messianic congregation who meets downstairs here on a Saturday, you see people who have that Jewish race, but they also believe that Jesus was that promised Messiah, the one that they were told would come. And this is opposed to the new believers who really didn't know much about the Jewish story at all, didn't know much about the history, but they heard about this Jesus guy, and he seems kind of on board, and I guess I'll take the rest of it with it. But that means you're not so concerned about the story that happened beforehand. And it's interesting to me that the Gentile Christians, that's the ones to say they don't have the history, they don't have the understanding, they don't have the background. Those are the ones referred to as the stronger here. (laughs) So I was wrestling with this and I thought, is this like hugely patronizing? Like, yeah, you you weak Judean Christians, you don't really get it. It's strange to call the Judean believers weaker, even though they are the people that have been following the God of Jesus for a thousand years. But this is why it's so important for us, even 2,000 years after this letter was written, to understand the whole story, to take time with the whole letter. Because we can cherry pick verses here and say, see, Jews, weaker brothers, don't worry about them too much. But actually, and Paul doesn't seem too concerned with them either, when actually he seems deeply concerned and affected by what's going on there. The rest of the letter shows us how much the Jewish story, how much their history matters to him and how much he understands it matters to them too. Paul knows that for the Judeans, this isn't a simple case of eating one more thing or eating one less thing. It is about their identity. It's about who they are and who they've always been. They, to be clear, the Jews were ridiculed in Rome for their refusal to eat pork because it was just such a, a natural thing to do. When I was researching for this sermon on what it was like to be a, a Jewish Christian in Rome, one of the big things that come up is like all the Roman historians just throw so much shade on the Jews for not liking pork. Like, it's like do these guys not realize what they're missing out on? 
But even despite the fact they are this object of ridicule, it didn't matter. Because that was one of the things that had set them apart. It was one of the ways that they showed the world that. It was the way that their parents had shown their devotion. It's the way that their grandparents had shown that devotion. And their great-grandparents, all the way back into Moses, stumbling around in the desert when God said, Hey, don't touch pork. It's one of the things that's going to be different about you. It's one of the ways that people are going to know that you are mine. It's going to be one of the ways that you remember that you are mine. This isn't about food. It's about identity. It's about story. And Paul understands it, and it's why he spends so much time in the letter of Romans, acknowledging it elsewhere. In the third chapter, he spends a whole bunch of time talking about how the Judeans were following the one true God before anyone. He spends a lot of time talking about Abraham, the significance of Abraham, And how, actually, this gold was only really revealed to the Gentiles quite recently through Jesus. And in chapter 5, he spends a whole bunch of time talking about Adam and Eve. And he talks about how important Adam is to the whole story. That even understanding Jesus is pretty difficult to do if you don't understand the significance of Adam. And then he spends a whole chunk of chapter 15 showing them that it is because he knows their story so well that there has to be unity. I'm going to read that for you quickly. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, so to Abraham, might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. Again, Isaiah says, so again, he's relying on the scriptures of the Judean believers, but revealing to them how this is part of God's plan. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. We're thinking about the work of God, and this unity was God's work all along. We heard in that reading, the point of this is for peace and for mutual edification, that we come together not to disagree, but to build one another, to learn from one another, despite the things we may disagree on. In fact, because of those very disagreements, that is how we build one another up. And each different person bringing their own unique perspective on God. The way that they know him and the way that they love him and the way that he has been revealed to them and every voice serves as an additional brushstroke on this beautiful painting that reveals more and more of who God is. 
I kind of think that Paul's charge here isn't so much chastising the church for getting things wrong, but lamenting just how much of God they miss out on when they aren't willing to listen to one another's stories, when they aren't able to give that real welcome. Because let's be honest, real welcome means putting other people first. If we're in to invite a vegetarian to our house, it's fair to say that we're not really welcoming them if we give them like a tadakan, which apparently is a real thing, I'm pleased to say. Like, like look this up. It's like, but it's okay, vegetarians, you can like dig around, there's some stuffing in there. I don't know, there's, there's something for you. That kind of looks like a welcome on our own terms rather than an authentic welcome. And even though cooking something vegetarian might come more unnaturally to us, may take some more getting used to, if we are the ones doing the welcoming, maybe we should be the ones making the compromises. Remember Rorschach from earlier, the never compromise, even in the face of Armageddon? Spoiler alert, he dies. Uh, (laughs) It's like 30 years old, like you've had time to check it out by this point. But his unwillingness to make compromises, even when it's actually for the good of everyone else, that gets him killed. Sometimes not compromising isn't the best way to go about things. And Paul tells this early church that right or wrong, there are some things that they need to put aside so as not to create stumbling blocks. Not to create stumbling blocks. And not to destroy the work of God and not to destroy that sapling faith that has the potential, right? That's how faith begins. It begins as this little seed that grows and grows and grows and it can grow into something great and massive and beautiful and strong. But we've got to protect it from the beginning because when it's a sapling, it's less resilient. It can be crushed really easily by just one thoughtless act. I was thinking about this this week and um, a church that I used to work for and the the pastor and his wife who did quite a lot of things uh, weren't a great fit and I think did quite a lot of damage. And I I didn't really see them, the, the pastoral heart in them. And one of the things I heard happen, my sister's friend had just had a baby and was thinking of having this baby dedicated. And so she called the church. She knew that I, I worked there. And she called uh, his, his house, which was the number that it said to call on the website. And, uh, and his wife picked up the phone on a, on a Monday, this was. And this girl said, hey, I, you know, I've just had this baby. I've been thinking about going to church. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about having my baby dedicated at, at St. John's. This is not the St. John's in Toronto. This is St. John's back in England. And, uh, and his wife said, he doesn't work Mondays and hung up the phone. So she didn't go to church. It's that simple. But what a beautiful thing it can be for us to build the work of God together, to see that sapling grow, to nurture it, to shelter it. And Paul knows 
that those early Christians, they get to play a part in that. And, and we should know now that we get to play a partner part in that too, that God partnered with them back then and he partners with us right now. And sometimes all we need to do to let that sampling grow is just to chill out for a second. Just lay off a bacon sandwich for the afternoon. And with Paul's demands on that early church, it feels appropriate to ask ourselves the same question. Where are we willing to make compromises to make sure that people feel welcome? Are we, are we prepared for how beautiful this could look if we get it right? Are we prepared for how vibrant that painting of God can be, that image of who he is can be if we have all these voices and all these paintbrushes contributing to it. Because when we're not willing to compromise, things can get real ugly really fast. We can look at church history for all the ways that that is true. There's been major contention over you know, adult or infant baptism and whether the communion elements turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus and should we speak in Latin or should we speak in the language that people actually understand? Not to learn how I might feel about that one. But these are things that people literally died over. Like actually died, burnt at the stake, drowned to death, died over. On both sides. Like there's no side that looks great in any of these arguments. And whilst I think there will be some people in this room with some strong opinions on those things. Oh, I have pictures as well. I don't think those are the things that will say, you're not welcome in this community right now. I don't think we're there. But sometimes it can even be in the mundane things. Because an unwillingness to compromise on even those small issues can crush that sapling faith that I've been talking about. It can destroy the work of God. Like, for a long, long time, it was expected that, like, women wear hats in church, and men didn't have long hair, and, you know, I'm like, just doing that, so. <laughs> what an act of rebellion. <laughs> and it's easy to laugh about those things now, and, and maybe we should, but these have been real divisive and very hurtful issues. I know that uh, Albert's mother, who's <laughs> out taking the collection right now, she was basically a social pariah at her church because she wore pants. Like, that was the thing that the church was like, yeah, that's a bridge too far, man. But think about this, and think about this compromise that even if the church were right in expecting her to wear a dress, why weren't the church willing to give that up? Why weren't they willing to leave that behind and in their refusal to compromise, they're not realizing they risk destroying the work of God. And how beautiful would it be that instead, in that scenario, the church said, Look, Albert's mom, I don't agree with your pant-wearing craziness, but I want to hear your story. We want to know why this matters so much to you. And... 
let's be honest, maybe God doesn't change just because we have a pant-wearing woman in church. Maybe, maybe we can leave behind the ideal and not leave behind the person. I was also uh, told by Albert that when he and Steve Goldie were at Tyndale, uh, a similar amusing thing happened. Steve Goldie, for those of you that don't know, is an absolute cornerstone of this community. The outreach that he does and the heart that he has is incredible. He has been a wonderful and loyal friend to me for a long time. He's also not here today, so really wary of talking about him. But those of you that know Steve will know that despite all of those things I've said being desperately true, this is a distinctly Steve Goldie story. When he was at Tyndale or OBC as it was back then with Albert, you were not allowed to wear blue jeans to dinner. And if you know Steve Goldie, you'll understand He's not one to be too bothered by these things. So he wore blue jeans to dinner. And then someone came up to him and said, you can't wear blue jeans at dinner. And so he took his pants off. (laughs) So we want to be careful about the kind of rules We want to force people to stick to because sometimes people might actually deliver on them. Are we going to be willing to compromise? Are we going to be willing to give things up? Because otherwise there's a very real risk that a pantsless Steve Goldie is going to chase you down. More seriously, I think that there is so much beauty in the unity that we just don't see if we are focused on the things that divide us instead of the things that unite us. Romans disarm said this, that unity isn't found in agreement of all particulars, but in the direction of our actions and our convictions. Unity isn't found in the agreement of all particulars, but in the direction of our actions and our convictions. rolling up to the end. Let's all of us think about the directions of our actions and our convictions. How do your actions and convictions mirror or reveal, point to who God is? How do they contribute to that beautiful painting of what God looks like? Let's all of us, consider our posture towards those that we don't agree with, both in the mundane and the major. And remember that history doesn't look particularly fondly on those doing the murdering and doing the cruelty. Let's instead focus on how much we agree on and how we all celebrate that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we celebrate the kind of kingdom that he ushers in where the blind see and the lame walk and the hungry are fed. It's a kingdom where Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And sometimes, yeah, God will make some pretty heavy demands of us. But it isn't about excluding items from our dinner plate, but instead it's about making sure everyone is included at our dinner table. And yeah, there's a couple of non-negotiables, but today isn't the day for them. 
How different and how beautiful does that dinner table of Jesus look when all kinds of people are welcome at it? Not just the people that dress the same way as us or come from the same places spiritually or theologically or geographically as us. But let's ask ourselves the question, what are we willing to lay aside to build the work of God? To find that beauty in unity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you are working in us. And we pray for soft, soft hearts. That our convictions be rooted in how you love that they be rooted in the ways that we include in the ways that we welcome and we pray that wellspring be a place that doesn't send people away but instead welcomes them with open arms in your name we pray amen